Hello and welcome to the St. Peter Institute podcast. My name is Marcus Peter, the president of the Institute and your host for today. Joining me once again is our guest, Tony Powers, scripture scholar and apologist extraordinaire. Tony is a regular guest on the show and uh, he does us the service of taking us through the wonders of sacred scripture. Tony is a friend of fellow alumnus of Ave Maria University and at present he works for the Metropolitan Tribunal of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Tony is the husband of Christy Powers, the father of four-month-old Jude Powers, coming on five pretty soon, and they all reside within the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. So, Tony, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, you're definitely giving me a little bit more credit than I deserve. I'm I'm not a scholar. I just have a lot of free time and like learning about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and as much as you're doing us the service of scholarship uh, that, that warrants the title in its own right. Um, so yeah, today, Tony has agreed to walk us through scripture at large. So the Bible and where it came from. That's a topic for today. So Tony, you have the floor. The Bible and where it came from. I'm of the opinion that Jesus was going up into heaven. And as he was going up, he stopped and he said, by the way, here's this book by the Holy Spirit, interpret it as you will. <laughs> oh, Marcus. <laughs> well, uh, so one of the things you might notice when you're looking at the Gospels is that that incident isn't in there uh, because it turns out that's not where we got the Bible. Um, it came from somewhere else, and no one ever thinks about where it came from. They just kind of take this book and say, yes, this is the Word of God, and then go from there without pausing to consider, what is this? What does it mean that this is the Word of God? Why is it this particular set of books? Uh, and a topic of much frustration between some Catholics and non-Catholics is that our books don't match. Um, the Catholic Bible, the one that we use, uh, is made up of 73 books. We have 46 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Uh, but most Protestant Bibles have 66 books with uh, 39 Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And that 39-book Old Testament has the same material, but a different numbering than what the what book the Jews use. And their count only has 22, but it's the same stuff divided differently. It's a whole big mess. And how did we even wind up in this place? So, first things first. What are the things that we have that they're missing? Uh, there are seven books. Uh, these are First and Second Maccabees. Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, and Baruch. Okay. These seven books. Uh, and the one thing they have in common is that they're not in the Protestant or the Jewish Bibles. Now, when you ask a Protestant why theirs only has 39 Old Testament books, uh, what they'll usually point to is uh, the Council of Trent and say, in 1545, the Catholics added seven new books to the Bible, and so the the Protestants are right in only using 39 because we added to the Bible things that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, there's just one problem with this claim. It's not true. And so we're going to dive a little bit into that in just a second. Uh, but when Protestants are making this claim, what they'll say is that Martin Luther took the Bible that the Jews were using and, he'll, and they'll say, that was the right Bible to use. That's the one we should use because that's the Bible that Jesus would have used. Again, that's not entirely accurate. So, let's talk about this Old Testament thing first. Um, 
Now, when we look at the Old Testament, and I mentioned that the Jews and the Protestants have different ways of counting, it is the same material. Uh, one of the things that the Jews do, instead of separating out all 12 of the minor prophets, it's just combined into one section. Uh, and there's a couple of other things that get merged and separated in different ways. Uh, so they wind up with 22, but it's, it's the same material. Uh, and it's divided into three parts. Uh, if you've ever heard of the Tanakh, that's the, what we refer to as the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's an acronym for three different Hebrew words that correspond to each of these parts. The first parts of the Torah, uh, we call that the Pentateuch. It's just the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Second part, it's called the writings. Um, and that's, well, that's kind of the miscellaneous bit. The third part's the prophets. And this isn't just the writings of the prophets, but the period of prophecy. So first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, they actually fit in with the prophets because that's when the prophets were prophesying. So you have the Torah and the prophets, and then everything else goes just into the writings as the miscellaneous catch-all category. So at some point, we're really not sure when, um, but this structure and this uh, delineation of books became the form that the Jewish people used. Now, I want to emphasize one thing. We're not sure when this happened. It's very unclear. We don't really have a whole lot of uh, recorded history, especially of the Jews, from roughly the turn of... I guess the eras uh, in that zero year one BC year one eighty area until uh, after the destruction of the temple. That's a really big gaping hole in history. Uh, we the only source we really have for that is Josephus, and well, quite frankly, he wasn't concerned with where the Bible came from. Uh, so, it, at some point in the first couple centuries. Um, the common version is that there was a gathering of the Jewish leaders in a city called Jamnia in the late 80s, around 90 or so, and that's when they settled the question. There's just one problem with this. Um, the records of that meeting don't show them talking about this. This idea actually first got proposed in the 1870s, uh, and since it first came out, it's been widely discredited by just about everybody because they didn't talk about that. They talked about a bunch of other things, and there definitely seems to have been some sort of meeting where they fixed other issues with Jewish daily prayer, but they didn't talk about the scriptures. So we really can't point to a particular moment when this form got used. But what we can do is we can point to certain citations that Jesus makes when he's speaking, uh, certain references that some of the few writings that have survived to us make, um, and we can look at what they used. And the version that they use is called the Septuagint. And this is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, the legend has it that at some point in Alexandria, 70 or 72 Jewish elders were gathered together and each locked in their own room 
and given a Hebrew copy of the scriptures and told, translate this to Greek. And then at the end of the process, when all 70 of them turned in their copies, they were all exactly identical. Uh, and so this version, the Septuagint named after the 70 who translated it, became seen as an inspired translation. So it became widely used. Now, a lot of people have discredited, have uh, pointed to this as really just a legend, but the fact of the matter is the Septuagint was widely used and often seen as inspired. And actually, one of the really interesting things that we can point to, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are a bunch of scrolls that we found in a cave in the Middle East uh, in the mid-1900s, we open them up, and a lot of the writings are coming from B the BC era. So we're talking the first century before Jesus, about the time that the Hasmonean and the, the line of the Maccabees are ruling Judah, uh, is declining, and right before Herod takes power. And when we look at what they use, they use the Septuagint too. So we know that the Septuagint was being used in this area at this time. Okay. Now, the other thing about the Septuagint, it's bigger. Those seven books that I mentioned at the beginning that are missing from the Protestant Bible and the, the Jewish Bible, um, they are in the Septuagint. And one of the reasons that they, that they got taken out is because they're not originally written in Hebrew. They're originally written in Greek. So like First and Second Maccabees, for example, uh, they were obviously written after the revolt, because how else are you going to tell the story of what happened before that happened? And the revolt is against the Greeks when the entire region spoke and wrote Greek. So it's naturally in Greek rather than Hebrew. And on just these books, there's a couple of sections of Daniel, for example, that got taken out uh, because those chapters were originally in Greek. So when we have the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the scriptures, there's no problem including these because everything else is in Greek too. But when we try to get back to the Hebrew, well, we have a problem because we don't have a Hebrew original that we can point to for these. So that's the Septuagint. That's those seven books. And that's a little bit about where that divide started to happen. Uh, now, there's another thing to think about because you would think we could look at the first generation of Christians or maybe the second generation and see, ooh, what did they use? We'll just use what they used. Um, there's just one problem with that. They weren't in agreement. See, for the first couple hundred years, there were various people who would say, yes, this book should be included. No, this book should not. Yes, this one should. No, it shouldn't. And the fights back and forth, sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. It's a whole big thing. Um, but as you dig through these lists, one of the things that you'll find, the book of Baruch, which Catholics use, non-Catholics don't, is almost universally included among early Christian canons. But every once in a while it gets left out. Esther, which everyone uses now, actually occasionally got left out, uh, just as a couple of examples. Now, we don't quite know exactly when a consensus began to form. Um, a lot of people like to point to the Council of Nicaea and say, yes, this is the moment when it was all decided. 
again, that's not exactly accurate. We don't, the, what we have of the council of Nicaea doesn't tell us this, but that didn't stop the legend from spreading. Um, there's actually, uh, a story that Voltaire, who was no friend of Christianity, uh, he liked to tell to show just how ridiculous Christianity is. So according to this legend that Voltaire liked to tell, at the Council of Nicaea, they took individual copies of all of these books and set them on the, on the altar, and then something happened, and whatever books were left on the altar, the rest got shaken off or something. But what was left on the altar was inspired by God and should be the Bible. This is purely a legend. It doesn't show up until after 700 years later. That's not how it happened. What did happen was a more gradual process, but that involved specific exercises of authority. So, in 382, we have a gathering of local bishops in Rome where they all got together and they said, hey, we should probably figure this question out. And so we got this list out of them. Uh, it's called the Damascene Canon because the Bishop of Rome at the time was Pope Damasus I. So in 382, they met in Rome, Pope Damasus led this meeting, and they decided on these books. And then in the 390s, this, was, this list was dispersed throughout uh, a bunch of different Christian cities. Uh, and in the 390s, there were a couple of other meetings in North Africa, uh, one in Hippo in 393, one in Carthage in 397, uh, where Augustine comes forward, and he was part of leading these meetings, and they also ratified this list. And about the same time that the North Africa meetings are happening, uh, Damasus commissioned uh, Jerome to translate the Bible into Latin. So, in order for Damasus to commission a translation of the Bible, there has to be a list of things that are going to be in this Bible. Right? That is typically how these things work. Uh, and so what Jerome did was he actually went back to the original languages and this translation, actually I have a copy of it here in front of me. Oops. Back some other books over. Uh, it's called the Vulgate. It's the Latin translation of the Bible from the original languages, which means the old Testament is translated from the Hebrew, except for those seven books, which are translated from the Greek. And while Jerome was working on this project, in his introduction to those seven books, he actually explicitly mentions the Jews do not use these books. We are going to, but the Jews do not. Um, and in some other letters that he was writing, he actually made sure that it was very clear. He had no problem with using these books. He just wanted to point out that these were not written in Hebrew originally, and the Jews do not use them anymore. Now, eventually, a couple well, almost a thousand years later, uh, the Vulgate became the official translation of the Catholic Church uh, by official decree. So, and that's where the Council of Trent usually gets involved in this because it was the Council of Trent that said, yes, Jerome's Vulgate is the official version of the Bible. But it wasn't the first time that we had pointed to these 73 books as being part of it. Um, like the Council of Florence in the 1400s had also done the same thing. Um, uh, I believe it was the Fourth Lateran Council had made a couple mentions of some of these books. This was not a new thing. Okay. So that's 
how we wound up with the 46 books in the Old Testament that we have now. But that doesn't really help us understand what it actually is. That just, under, that just shows us how we got to where we are today. But really, at the root of all this, why does it even matter? Well, the Jewish way of breaking it up is actually really helpful for us to understand what's going on. So we're going to start with looking at the Torah. What is the Torah? All right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books. Great. What's happening in those books? Well, with Genesis, we start with creation. And then we start with some stories of prehistoric man. Um, you know, the story of Noah, uh, Cain and Abel, all that fun stuff. But in the Ark of Genesis, there's a very, very, very clear peak. It's about halfway through. It's actually three particular incidents, one in Genesis 15, one in Genesis 17, and one in Genesis 22. And in these three chapters, that's where God and Abraham are having their closest connections. Uh, these are the three chapters where God's covenant with Abraham is most explicitly clear. So in Genesis 15, we have God first promising Abraham, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. In Genesis 17 is where Abraham actually becomes Abraham, and God tells him that Ishmael is not the one that will be the fulfillment of the covenant. And Genesis 17 is also that really awkward incident where God tells Abraham that you need to be circumcised. And I, hmm. Poor Abraham. Uh, and then in Genesis 22, we have the incident of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Now, really interesting tidbit here that points to why the Torah is so important. Uh, according to Jewish legend, Mount Moriah is actually the same mountain as Mount Zion, where the temple is built. So the Jews are very, very aware of the fact that Abraham, their father in faith, is the most important figure in Genesis because the covenant that God makes with Abraham is the whole point of the book. And then the rest of Genesis, we see the beginnings of the fulfillment with Isaac, uh, with Jacob and his sons, and the beginning of the nation of Israel. And then in Exodus, we have some of the descendants of Abraham starting in Egypt and then moving eventually, uh, once they got their act together, back to the Holy Land. Uh, and we see its high point in Exodus 24 at Mount Sinai when God extends his covenant to the people of Israel. So the, the high point of Genesis is the covenant with Abraham. The high point of Exodus is the covenant with Moses. And then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are exactly what they're supposed to do in order to live out that covenant. And also stories of what happens when you don't do that. So you have, for example, the ground opening up and swallowing some of the dissenters. Uh, you have the golden calf incident and them having to drink gold. Uh, you have uh, the scouting adventure into the promised land where they all come back and say it's filled with giants and there's no way we can do this. And God tells them, well, this generation isn't going to be the one to do it. Uh, so the Torah is the story of where the covenants came from and what they're supposed to do in order to live out those covenants. So that's why it's A, first, and B, most important of the Jewish texts. Okay. So the second part's the prophets. 
Now, the prophets are less important than the Torah because, well, it's not God telling them exactly what they need to do in order to live, that, live out the original covenant, but it is God speaking to his people through his chosen messengers and telling them fairly regularly, stop what you're doing, you're being stupid and you're ruining everything. Um, and so we have some of the history of, the, of God's chosen people, but that's not the important part of the prophets. The important part is what God speaks through his messengers. So, yes, the story of David is very important. Yes, the story of Solomon is important. But it's less important than the promises God is making to his people and the messages God is giving to them to get their act together and actually do this the right way. Okay, so we have the covenants in the Torah. We have the constant reminders that they need to follow the covenants and the warnings of what's going to happen if they don't in the prophets. Now, the last group... I mentioned that it's kind of the miscellaneous category, but one of the things that the vast majority of these writings have in common, they're associated with holidays. So uh, Esther, for example, uh, is associated with the holiday of Purim, um, which involved um, the, oh, I cannot remember his name. Um, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was one of the Assyrian kings. Um, and the conspiracy against Mordecai and then uh, saving the Jewish people from one of their persecutions. It was most probably, it was either Xerxes or Artaxerxes, either one of those two. Thank you, Marcus. Miss, Mr. God Hello. King. Uh, I, I remember yes. this because of the movie 300. Sorry. <laughs> uh, oh, oh. And I'm sitting here using my VeggieTales knowledge to try to remember. <laughs> Anyway, so we have Esther associated with Purim, uh, or one of the texts that they don't use anymore, but the Maccabees uh, is where Hanukkah happens. Um, so, yes, it's kind of a catch-all, but we have some beautiful poetry about God with the Psalms. We have some holidays with Esther, uh, and so it's not something completely random. There is still a purpose for these writings and why they would use them. So. Okay, that's, that's the Old Testament. Now, I, I just want to, other? I'm so sorry, I just want to interject here. That's a lot to process just in terms of bringing together the canon of the Old Testament. And, 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 and it's really good. Thank you so much for walking us through this because you're right. We take this for granted. I'm about to make a very bad Catholic joke here, but... Uh, <laughs> What do you what do you call so back when I was a preacher in in the Protestant churches when we say uh, and so when we look at Proverbs three verse five everyone flips to Proverbs three verse five everyone has their Bibles and everyone's flipping so because of that we never needed air conditioning because that was the air conditioning that we needed <laughs> but what do you call uh, every Catholic on the planet picking up their Bibles and turning turning the pages at the same time what the greatest dust storm in human history. <laughs> uh, and, and it's painful how true that is. <laughs> so I say this not because I want. I, I'm I'm a proud Catholic, but uh, but you're right. Even I can take for granted just how much prayer, discernment, scholarship, and and and, and immense reading went into 
deciding what makes the canon of just the Old Testament. And here I am sitting with this book right here in front of me, not realizing that many have died before me to make sure that I have access to this as well as it's done. So thank you so much for that. And that paves the way for me to now appreciate what's happening in the New Testament. So please, Tony, walk us through that. Okay, so the New Testament, it's a lot simpler. Well, relatively speaking. Uh, so there are 27 books in the New Testament. Catholics and non-Catholics are in agreement about these. There's no fighting about these 27 books anymore. Uh, part of the problem is that there had been a lot of fighting about it uh, because when you look back at the first generation of Christianity, they, they, didn't, they didn't have this. The oldest book of the New Testament, usually uh, people talk about the book of Galatians written in the early 40s. That, that's a decade after Jesus. They went a decade without anything written down. That's kind of a big deal and kind of a thing that we don't think about often enough. But when the apostles went out and started preaching, they didn't have anything written down. They were just kind of doing this. They were talking about the experiences that they'd had and this man that they'd been following and what happened with him and the things that he told them. And it's not for the first decade that things start getting written down. And then the very first things that get written down, usually it's, uh, we get Galatians, 1 Corinthians, uh, maybe 1 and 2 Thessalonians, depending on who you talk to. The first things we write down are letters to other Christians. It's not what Jesus said or did. It's letters to other Christians about how to do this whole Christian thing. It took about 30 years depending on who you talk to, somewhere in the 20 to 30 year window, before we started writing down the things that Jesus said and did. Everything else was, oh yes, you guys, I visited you. Um, make sure you keep doing what I told you. Yes, you in Corinth, will you guys please get your act together and stop fighting? And that's, that's the context that these letters start being written in. So, we don't have a New Testament for the first generation of Christians. The New Testament, and we can talk about that word or that phrase towards the end here. Um, it was what the apostles told them. That's what, that's where they got this. Now it took another, once all of these books were written, depending on who you talk to somewhere between 70, 90, maybe even a hundred. Um, it took that long before anyone even decided to try to collect these things into one concrete thing for everything to for everyone to use. Like the first time we have anyone write out a list of what we would what we today would consider scripture is about 150. Before this point, they're doing things very differently than we would think about it. And this first list that we have written out doesn't look like the list that we use today. Matter of fact, the oldest canon, so the list of books in the Bible is called the canon of scripture. The oldest one we have includes one gospel, and it's a very mangled version of that gospel. And it was, the reason that this was put together was because this man, uh, Marcion of Sinope, Sinope? 
weird names of cities that have very different names that they're even still standing today. Um, but he put this together for his followers to use as their scriptures. This wasn't even the apostles or their successors. This Marcion was teaching some really, really out there stuff. Okay. So it's not even the successors of the apostles that are putting this together for their followers. It's someone who's doing something completely separate from them who put this together for his followers. And it's only after him that we see other Christians look around and say, wait a minute, we should probably fix this. So then we get some other lists from all kinds of people. Origen gives us a list. Uh, Athanasius gives us a list that's very similar to actually it's Athanasius is about the same as the one we use today. Um, but we get all these different lists. But again, when we had that meeting in 382 of Pope, Pope Damasus and the Italian bishops, that was the first time that we see this codified in a way for all to use. And that's a very important thing. It was specifically put this way for people to use. But use for what? Because that's another thing that we never think about. Why did they bother with this? Why does it matter that uh, these th these group these people over here are using this list that no one ever recognizes, and we would look at and say, "Why are you using these?" But using them for what? Because when we think about using the Bible today, we think about reading it, about studying it, uh, sometimes about pulling out verses to show people why we believe what we believe. That's not what it was first used for. And this is where it gets really interesting. So we don't have a whole lot of insight into the first couple generations of Christians. Uh, a lot of writings have just been lost to time. Uh, turns out paper is not the most durable material in the world, and the paper that we know today isn't actually very old. Uh, the papyrus they were using is even less durable. Now, thankfully, we do have some people along the way that can show us what it was for. Uh, Justin Martyr is the oldest one we can trace back to. He was writing in the 150s. Um, and in his first apology, he gives us a breakdown of what the Christians do when they gather. And so you'll often hear this, uh, especially talking about Justin Martyr's description of the Eucharist, because he gives us a very, honestly, it's a very similar description of the Mass to what we see today. And it's a very similar description of the Eucharist to what we would call it today. Uh, so he's a very good one for Catholics to be familiar with. But that's not the part we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about something else he says a little bit before this. Uh, on the first day of the week, they gather to hear the readings. The he, they gather to hear the reading of the prophets and some writings of the apostles, followed by some preaching which exhorts them to live their lives. Now I want to go back through that. We're reading the prophets, and we're reading the writings of the apostles, and then someone's preaching about these writings and exhorting them in how they are to live their lives. Now, to a Jewish audience, this sounds very similar, or very familiar, because this is very similar to what happens in a synagogue service. Uh, now, today, depending on which Jewish congregation you're a part of, there's a lot more blessings and uh liturgical things happening it's it's a much bigger affair it's a slightly different affair 
But when we're talking about the first couple generations after the destruction of the temple, when they're trying to figure out how they're going to be Jewish again, um, they would gather for the reading of the prophets. And actually, we see Jesus do this exact same thing. Uh, Luke 4, for example, is when Jesus stands up and says, Today you have seen this fulfilled in your midst. Uh, when he's talk he reads a prophet of Isaiah. And it leads to them leading him to a cliff and trying to throw him off. Whole big thing. Um, but that's why the New Testament is so important. Because its first purpose, the reason that we put these books together, was to use them in a liturgical context. It's not so that we can study and learn what the apostles wanted us to know, although that is a good thing to do. No, it was in order that we might have the same books that we're reading all around the world. Because before this, different communities had different books they were using. So um, like Corinth, for example, uh, in around the year 95 or so, uh, Pope Clement I had written a letter to Corinth that was often used as an example of a writing of the apostles. Um, there was this other book called The Shepherd of Hermas uh, that was used in some areas. There were also some books that weren't used. Um, for example, the letter of St. James wasn't very widely used outside of the Jerusalem area. Um, or Hebrews, because they really couldn't figure out they couldn't agree on, on who wrote Hebrews. Uh, some groups accepted it as something one of Paul's disciples wrote. Uh, some groups rejected it because they had no idea where it came from. And if you don't know where it's from, then you got to be careful about what you're looking at. Uh, and so it's not until almost 400 that we start to see some cohesion in this. Which tells us two things. Number one, okay, we made it 400 years without having universal cohesion in this, which means as important as the Bible is for us today, it's not the source of our Christian faith. They made it 400 years without being in complete agreement about it. But on the other hand, it also tells us that the importance of the Bible rests in its use in the liturgy. So as important as it is for us to read it and to understand it and to be able to see how Jesus came to fulfill the things that had been said about him in the Old Testament, um, its original purpose is in the Mass and as the spoken Word of God. And I said that I talk about that at the beginning, and I really want to stress this because this is, this is actually important. Because when you, ask, when you ask a Catholic what the Bible is, they, if they're able to give you an answer, uh, they will usually say something along the lines of the book that Christians use, um, something to that effect. The more well-educated will say something like the inspired word of God. But if you ask a Protestant what the Bible is, the very first thing that they tell you is it is the word of God. Like that's the first words out of their lips. And in a certain way of speaking, yes, that's true, but there's, there's something important that we need to consider. See, the Bible tells us what the word of God is. So, you know, our non-Catholic brothers and sisters will point to things like Ephesians six seventeen, where the sword of the spirit is the word of God or, um, like Hebrews four twelve. Uh, but when we look at the greater context and the lives of the apostles in acts, we, 
we see something different because when Paul goes to a new city, what does he do? He speaks the word of God to them. When Peter comes out uh, of the upper room after Pentecost, he preaches the word of God to them. It's not something written down. The word of God is something spoken and preached to the people first and foremost. That's its most important and most uh, concrete form that we have, the spoken word. And that's why in the mass, it's such a big deal that the word of God is proclaimed to us because that is where we see the word of God from the apostles. But there's even more because how does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the way the prologue ends in John 1.18, and the word became flesh. So at its highest form, the word of God is Jesus, is the person of the Son. So yes, the Bible is the word of God, but when we call the Bible the word of God, it's three steps down from the original word of God. We have the word of God, the second person of the Trinity incarnate in the person of Jesus. And then we have the spoken word of God that the apostles went out and preached to the people and which inspired conversion around the world. And then we get the written word, the record of those things that the apostles spoke. So when we, when we think about the word of God, oh, we, we really need to stop and consider what it is that we're looking at, what it is that we're hearing, and what it is that we're thinking about. Because at its root, the Word of God, its purpose is to lead us to the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who in turn was sent to us to bring the Father to us. So when we see the entire Bible, all 73 books, and that very messy timeline and really complicated way in which it all came together for us, what we have now is a way in writing for us to experience what the first generation of Christians heard, what the very first followers of Christ saw, that person, Jesus Christ, about whom this all is. Without him, there would be no purpose for any of this. So the point isn't just for us to get lost in the book. The point is for us to take the book and let it lead us back to the Father. Thank you so much for that, Tony. That, that was utterly beautiful. Okay, so uh, a bunch of things are already bursting through my mind. Uh, you've walked us through this entire concept of the Word of God, but you've been throwing around the words Old Testament and New Testament. I know you've got a wealth to share with us. I, in fact, that, that alone might probably make, make three podcast episodes. So uh, let's just kind of, can you give us the spark notes on that? And uh, All right. what did the early Christians understand by this New Testament? Because you're telling us they didn't have the scriptures for years. Right. Okay, I'll do the short version because this is one that I could, again, go on about for an hour. Um, so the phrase New Testament appears exactly once in the Bible. Well, okay, technically it's three times, but it appears exactly once. It's at the Last Supper when Jesus takes the cup 
And he says, take this, all of you, and drink from it. For this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which will be poured out for you. Now, covenant, testament, different words. Let me explain. This is a quirk of translation. So, in Latin, the word is testamentum in various forms. Um, and so it gets translated as covenant. And the Greek word that it corresponds to also frequently gets translated as covenant. So, when Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant, in the Latin, it's, this is the blood of the Novum Testamentum, the new covenant, the new testament. And uh, one of the reasons that I like using Luke's gospel for this particular thing is that at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we have what's called the Canticle of Zechariah, when uh, John the Baptist is born and Zechariah is allowed to speak again because he'd been struck mute by the angel for not believing that his wife was going to have a child. Uh, the first thing he does is he gives this great praise to God and this great speech in prophecy of the life of his son. Uh, and one of the things that he says in praise of God is, you have remembered the holy covenant. Uh, you have remembered your people, the holy covenant you've made, you promised to our fathers. In the Latin, that word covenant is again testament. So when we see this, when we see the word New Testament, if we had translated the title of the book instead of just, you know, the book itself, it would be translated the New Covenant. So when we look at the Old Testament, that's the old covenant. And so when we're looking at this relationship between the old and the new covenant, what are they? Because when we look back at where these books came from, where did they come from originally? They were written to describe the covenant that God had made with his people. So the Old Testament and the New Testament, those aren't full titles. We abbreviated the title because, well, it's kind of a long title. If we were to do it properly, it's the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament. They're the books in which the Old and the New Covenants are contained. So in the books of the Old, of the Old Testament, we see the covenant that God made with Adam, the covenant God made with Noah, with Abraham, with David, with Moses. All those covenants played out all the ways they interrelate to each other. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus with the blood of the new covenant. And again, I could go on about this for hours, but I'm going to try to keep this brief. Uh, so when Jesus gets up and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, that's why we call it the new covenant, because that's the word that Jesus used. It's not to say that uh, we can completely ignore everything that happened before. We can forget about all of it. It doesn't matter anymore. No. All of those things we're leading up to this final covenant of Jesus and we're helping to prepare us for it. And again, I could go on about this for hours and I'm really trying not to. <laughs> um, but when we have Jesus, what does he say? As soon as he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, do this in memory of me. See the covenant isn't something that we write down and we read and we study and we learn and then just forget and that's it. No, it's something we do over and over and over again. And we even see this with the old covenants. 
when they rebuild the temple with Nehemiah and Ezra, I think it's Nehemiah 10. Um, the first thing they do when the temple's done, they renew the covenant they have with God. They're not making a new covenant with God. They're renewing the promises that their ancestors had made so that they can, for themselves, not because they haven't been constituted in the covenant already, but uh, for their own, in their own human way, to be able to experience what it means to make this covenant with God. And okay, so that's, that's perfect. You're probably not going to be very happy with this, but I'm going to take you down a tangent because <laughs> this is too precious not to. Okay, so you, you've been talking to us so much about how long before the New Testament, as we understand it, the books of the New Testament were writing down, describing this New Testament. It was... It, it was the the canon was brought together to describe books that were proper to be used during the celebration of the liturgy. Walk us down that, please. Just, just, just. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Okay, Marcus, you you're really making it hard to keep these within any sort of reasonable time span. Uh, okay, so what? When we look at uh, Nehemiah and the renewal of that covenant, because honestly, this is a perfect way for us to see what we do today. The very first thing they do as a part of this process, they take out a book of the law. And actually, it was one that they had rediscovered that had apparently been lost. Uh, and the book of the law is read to them. And then they're preached to about this law and about the covenant that their fathers had made with God and that they're going to renew this covenant now. And that this covenant means that they're going to have to live a certain way. And then, once they've read this book of the law and heard about what this means for their lives, they actually go and renew the covenant with the, sac with the covenant sacrifice. And then they all you know, sign a piece of paper saying, yes, we're a part of this. And that's approximately two chapters of Nehemiah. It's just a list of names of people that signed the paper. Um, but... If that structure sounds familiar, it should, because what we do today as Catholics, when we go to mass, what's the first thing we do? We walk in, the priest comes up, we greet each other, we sing glory to God, because that's always the first thing that we should be doing. And then we hear about the books of the covenant. We hear the books of the old covenant which are paving the way and preparing the people. And then we hear the books of the new covenant and about what has been done for us and uh, some admonitions about what the new covenant means for our lives. And then we hear from the story of when the new covenant was made, namely the gospels. And then once we've heard from all of these, we get uh, an admonition from the priest about what this means for our lives about uh, it's supposed to be about explaining the scriptures that we've read and how to, how these are supposed to impact our lives. And then once we're done with that, we may make a transition to actually doing that covenant. So, and again, this is a rabbit hole. We could go down for hours, but one of the things that the mass is, and Catholics talk about this a lot, that, we don't re-sacrifice Christ. So, in a certain sense, we are renewing the covenant 
of Jesus. But we're not putting Jesus back on the cross. We're not sacrificing a new cow or anything like that. What we're doing is we're participating in the perpetual sacrifice that Jesus has made. So we start with the study of the covenant and what it should mean for our lives and how we're supposed to live it out in our own lives. We end with that covenant renewal in a way that I need much more time to talk about because God and time and sacrifice is a whole other can of worms for another time. And then what's the last thing that the priest says in mass? Go. Now, when he says it in Latin, it's ite, which is very explicitly a command. We, we have to get out and go because what was the entire purpose of all of this? It's for us to be a part of this covenant, which means that it should be impacting our own lives outside of those four walls. So we start looking at these books. That's part of why these books matter is because they're telling us how to live this new covenant. We renew the covenant, and then we go and we take the impact of that covenant renewal into our own lives every day. Thank you so much. And, and I'm going to discipline myself to not open up more rabbit holes. I'm going to tease everyone with a topic that I do believe you should walk us through at one point. Back when I was a Protestant, we were, we were kind of given a lot of anti-Catholic biases, one of which was, where do you find a Catholic mass in the Bible? And, and yes, <laughs> no, I'm not going to open the rabbit hole today, but for those Good. of you listening, Tony and I are going to have this conversation in hopefully next week. Uh, but I, but I, I, I do want to just build on what Tony has been saying and, and surmise this, if I'm listening to you correctly, what you're saying is it's not so much that I need to find the mass in the Bible. It's that the Bible is a book that's drawn from the mass. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Tony. This has been fantastic. And for those of you listening, if you if you want to hear about how, uh, well, honestly, like we said, it's not about finding the mass in the Bible. It's finding the Bible in the mass. Uh, we'll tune in next time. And uh, amongst the many millions of things that we'll be talking about with Tony Powers. But for now, thank you very much for joining us on today's episode. We hope to have you join us for future episodes. I'm Marcus Peter, the president of the Institute, and been talking with our guest, Tony Powers, a friend, fellow alumnus of Ivy Maria University, and he works for the Metropolitan Tribunal of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. For you listeners, I'm going to encourage you to get in touch with Tony. The, the link will be in the description of how you can get in touch with him. You just fill in a form on our website and he'll get in touch with you directly. Until next time, God bless you and keep you always.